After more than 20 years of state governmental service, Peter Kinder is looking to his next endeavor. But before he does that, he's looking back at what many feel is a very successful legacy. The Republican from Cape Girardeau joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague, Joe Manis. And joining us in St. Louis, all the way from beautiful Cape Girardeau, Missouri, we have as our guest... Peter Kinder, Lieutenant Governor of Missouri, outgoing. Yeah, this is, this is the second year in a row where the Lieutenant Governor has graced us with a holiday appearance and it's always one of the better shows. It's Christmas with Kinder, basically. <laughs> yes. I think that's, right. I think that's yes. pretty good. Well, we're really looking forward to this because um, you're leaving office after 12 years and your total service to the state is, I think, about 24 24. years, maybe even more. That is correct. 24 years uh, since I arrived in January, a a few days from now, uh, as a young state senator in the minority party from southeast Missouri. Yeah. Actually, the first time I met him was during the 92 campaign when I was traveling with Bill Webster and we were down in that part of the state and he introduced me to you at some luncheon and you were running for the state senate then. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So I think that we're going to use this opportunity to, to look back at your career and your impact because as as other people have written about in, in the previous days that you leave office, your political impact is pretty substantial, um, even though you will not be holding office next year. So I'll ask very simply to start this off. As you leave office, what do you think your your impact on Missouri policy and politics is? I know that's an open-ended question, but I think that allows for a pretty open-ended answer. Well, a uh, an unsuccessful candidate for governor who later became U.S. senator named Jim Talent uh, told my parents in, in uh, when he was running for governor in, I think, 1999, yeah. uh, run up to the 2000 race that he narrowly lost to Bob Holden. He said, uh, we all wondered when Peter got to the Senate, would the Senate change Peter or would Peter change the Senate? (laughs) I think the verdict is in, uh, in which I hope it didn't change me. I think I'm the same person going back home now uh, after temporary service in state government. But that that the Missouri Senate is a very changed body, there can be no doubt. You know, before you came into the studio today, your staff sent me two maps, one in 1992 and one in 2016 of the Missouri Senate composition. And it it honestly blew my mind because in 1992, the Democrats held huge amounts of ground in outstate Missouri Senate districts. Today, they've been completely wiped out, not only in outstate Missouri, but even places like Jefferson County, which were Democratic, what, four, six years ago, yes, basically? Yeah. And, until uh, 2010. Until 2010. Yes. And um, I, I know from following you and from talking with you and from knowing a lot of people that work for you that even though I think that you are a, a public policy guy, first and foremost, your political operation and you personally definitely helped turn that map red. That's my assumption. Is that a true assumption or am I giving you too much praise Uh, where you don't deserve? No, I will say thank you for those kind comments. Uh, By the way, the same map I believe we provided you on the House districts. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
the House districts that obtained showing the huge Democratic majorities uh, from 1990 to 92 that have been unchanged for decades and the House map that obtains today in 2016. Um, I went to work. Uh, I was the 13th Republican out of 34 in the Missouri Senate when I arrived in the winter of 1993. The Democrats still had a huge majority in the House and every uh, statewide office except auditor. Uh, I went to work through the 90s trying to get us some more seats, and it was one step forward, two steps backward. The whole Republican tidal wave of 1994, for instance, missed Missouri without a trace. We actually lost a state Senate seat out in St. Charles. Probably because of the Hancock 2 fight. That year, it could have been. Uh, Ted House's victory took a Republican Senate seat away from us. and so it was very frustrating. We did gain in 1998 with Sarah Steelman's win, which I would argue dated back to the year before that and my unsuccessful attempt to override Governor Mel Carnahan's veto of my bill banning partial birth abortion, which was the first such bill in Missouri history. Uh, we passed it, put it on Mel Carnahan's desk without much trouble uh, with with Uh, margins above the veto proof, because Missouri, I can't stress this enough, even when Democrats had big majorities, was a pro-life state. You had pro-life stalwart lions in the Missouri House, in the Democratic side, and in the Missouri Senate Democratic side, John Schneider from here being a prime example. So um, when when we fell short, when a number of Democratic senators and one Republican senator switched their votes from yes on the passage of partial birth abortion bill to sustaining the Carnahan veto. That set the table for us to begin picking off some senators. And the first one to fall was defeated by Sarah Steelman in 1998. And that moved us closer to the majority and really set up the opportunity that we had in the 2000 and and winter of 2001 election cycle. Mm -hmm. Now, how much do you think? uh, But I had gone to work trying to raise money uh, when no other senator would, and convince good candidates to run. How much of the Republican surge, aside from the issues, is also tied to term limits? I mean, because it really went into effect 2000 and 2002. You know, that it was like over a two, four-year period, and it wiped out all but of these veteran that, Democrats. That certainly did help, but, I mean, we didn't go out and pick up Wayne Good's Senate seat. Uh uh, as term limits kicked in, we did pick up the Harold Caskey seat, the Jim Matthewson seat. Right. Uh, uh, but even before term limits kicked in, we were winning uh, in the boot heel with Bill Foster against Jerry, Jerry Howard in 2000 and setting up, as I said, the opportunity to move into the majority. But yes, term limits helped, but it, but it was one of many convergent factors. Now, you're leaving state government, frankly, one of the last, and you may be the last ever, who has had a long, you know, 24-year um, unbroken stint. Uh, I mean, that's rare now. Looking over all this, do you think term limits has been a good thing or a bad thing for state government? I'm interested in your perspective. Uh, I could make you an argument on either side, but I think it's uh, academic because the people grafted this onto our Constitution by a 72% vote, supermajority, and it's not going anywhere. I, I understand all the arguments against term limits, but I've seen it 
move some awfully capable people into public office who might not have ever had a chance before, and, and uh, the people have endorsed them. And we may now see a, a debate about uh, amending the national constitution to to do term limits, although I understand Mitch McConnell, who will be going for his seventh term in a few years, <laughs> is not going to move that to the floor of the Senate. I mean, let's, let's, let's uh, be candid. Without term limits, I don't think Chris Coster gets involved in state politics. He may have just stayed a Cass County prosecutor, but because Harold Caskey was ushered out, he got to run for that Senate seat. He obviously switched parties in dramatic fashion, but then became attorney general and, and almost became governor. Yeah. So there you go. He also, uh, we came very close to defeating Harold Caskey in the 2000 race mm-hmm. and ran out of money to do it. Well, I wanted to ask you about this particular race because I think it was the clim- climactic one. And, and I talk about Northeast Missouri politics almost obsessively. Some of my friends yeah. from <laughs> Northeast Missouri, like Ellie Glenn, um, meant, uh, needle me for, for talking about her home region so much. Little Dixie. Little Dixie. <laughs> But the thing that has fascinated me about that region is when I started covering politics for the Columbia Daily Tribune in 2006, Democrats were still winning up there. Wes Schumeyer won. They won a bunch of House races. It was still a pretty Democratic area. Conservative Democrats. Conservative Democrats, Democrats. but still Democrats getting elected to state House and state Senate seats. Now, John Cawthorn won in 2001. The majority maker. And the majority maker. So obviously had been trending more Republican but now it's at a point where you look at it in 2016, where Donald Trump was winning some of those counties that Wes Schumeyer won with 70 percent of the vote. And they're not even and Democrats aren't even bothering to field candidates in there anymore. That has to be shocking to someone like you who had to fight and claw your way to get ground up there. What, what, do, you, what, what do you ascribe that to? Well, Barack Obama helped a lot. Uh, Barack Obama and the agenda of his EPA, his Department of Labor, uh, uh, and so many other policies uh, were perceived in small-town and rural America as a war on their jobs, their economic base, their future, uh, their energy supply. Uh, to, you know, after to move to the other side of the state, Ike Skelton was an American icon, a Missouri icon right there in that congressional district. You could never blast him out with dynamite. But when he made the mistake in 2009 of voting for cap and trade, which could be arguably said to uh, take us on a road toward doubling our energy prices in a coal-dependent state like Missouri. Although that had been initially pushed by Republicans. Yeah. You could not... You could not even voting for uh, against Obamacare the next year, which he did, which right. he did, yeah, which he was allowed to do, could not save him uh, in the 2010 election, and he went down by a healthy margin. And that was a, I mean, to, even to this day, that to me is a pretty pivotal moment. And by the politics. way, that was that was the rural electric co-ops, mm-hmm. some something that most of your urban listeners don't. They're not even sure what that animal is, but let me tell you, if you're out in the small town countryside of rural Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, you belong to an electric co-op because that's how you get your electricity yes. that in the urban areas, in my hometown of Cape Girardeau also, is supplied by Amherst. Right. 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 I, I mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned that Ike Skelton situation, too, because it was seen when Ike Skelton retired that district was going to go Republican. The fact that Vicki Hartzler basically came out of political retirement and beat somebody with that much stature... I think should have been a, a pretty big red flag for Democrats in the future. Well, and I've said this five million times. I'll try and, but I've always thought that the Democrats in 2010, that they should have made 
I mean, just strategically, made getting Skelton reelected like priority number one. Because if they had gotten Skelton reelected, and then, of course, he would announce that he's retiring in 2012. Because he said he was going to retire. Then the redistricting, I think, would have been different. And Russ Carnahan actually might have been. The third district, I think, would have been shaped differently because they would want to make sure that uh, Skelton's district was shaped so that a Republican could win. Now they had to cut those districts in an odd way because Hartzler and Luktemar actually don't live that far apart. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole different no, that's right. a whole different dynamic. Well, I, that actually gets me to a question I wanted to ask you because when we, we occasionally have Democrats on this show and we ask them why are they doing so bad in the legislature, they often point to, quote, unquote, gerrymandering. And I have to push back at that because, as I'm sure you know, legislators don't draw state house and state senate districts. Either judges do because that board deadlocks or it's a it's a bipartisan commission. So when you hear arguments like that, what is your reaction from somebody who fought and clawed his way to make that blue map red? Well, I'll quote a Democrat, uh, JFK. <laughs> uh, Victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan. And, and w- when we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing the response of the Clinton campaign, the Jill Stein farcical right. behavior, uh, the million excuses. It was the Comey, it was the Russians, and and, and it, it was a, an act of God or something. The recent November eighth election, I, you know. It, believe me, I've been on the losing. I've been on through some bad Republican years. It's tough to reconcile yourself to defeat. But if you're around this business long enough, you're going to have some good nights. You're going to have some bad nights. And they even out, we hope. But, but here's the problem the Democrats in Missouri have now. They are where the Republicans were in the 40s, 50s, and 60s into the 70s. Very little to no bench. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it's hard to recruit peop- strong candidates to go up to, let's say, the Missouri Senate and be one of eight, nine, or ten members in a 34-member body. It's similarly hard to recruit strong candidates out state to go up and be one of 46 Republicans or Democrats out of, uh, out of 163 members of the House. Yeah. So it's, 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 it feeds on itself. Success breeds success, and defeats bring defeat. Breed now, defeat. now, you will, will go down as one of the longer... Uh, serving lieutenant governors, and most of the time you served under a Democratic governor. Um, and I know that there was two thirds of my tenure. Okay, there mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily that much communication. Um, looking over your tenure, first being often one of the only or one of the few Republicans in the state house, as far as the statewide's, regardless of the huge GOP margins yeah, the, in, the, in the general. The only summer. winner in both 08 and 12. So when you look at, like, your tenure, is there anything in particular that you're proud of? And are there, are there things that you, just looking at it objectively, where you say, you know, we could have done this much better if Nixon had talked to me or whatever. I mean, I'm just interested in your assessment after 12 years of holding that post. Uh, I'm proud of having tried to cross party lines and cross uh, racial and ethnic, ethnic lines, especially here in the St. Louis area where I generated some measure of uh, Democratic support and some measure of minority support beyond what most Republicans are able to achieve. 
Uh, I really, truly believe, and, and my, m the basis of my appeal there was that I really, truly believe that we should be the party of Lincoln, right. uh, appealing to all Missourians and, for that matter, all Americans. Um, so if Jay Nixon had consulted me more, I think we could have moved things forward for the St. Louis region over the last eight years more than we have. To take one example, I've championed Paul McKee's efforts on the North Side Project. Um, I worked to the extent I could uh, with the Democratic administration in Jeff City and a Democrat administration in uh, D.C. to make sure we got the NGA. Now we have NG the NGA and we have that's going to help make Paul's success in that transformative project on the north side. And I say God bless Paul McKee, you know, he could have taken the money he'd made in other developments and gone to the south of France or added on to his home in the Cayman Islands that instead he has sold over the last decade that home in the Cayman Islands because he got his plow stuck in some very hard ground in North St. Louis. I think he had a, a hostile administration in Jay Nixon who did not extend to him all the uh, uh, support that he should have gotten and we've lost some more years in regenerating North St. Louis. I think you're going to see a posture from this administration, I hope, in Jeff City, and I know in Washington, D.C., that wants to work across party lines to move our urban areas forward and give some hope to people in the urban area here who, who've so long been without it. I'm glad you brought that up because last Friday night in this icy mist that caused traffic problems across St. Louis, I got a chance to spend some time with Governor-elect Greitens in North St. Louis. And he went to... Uh, I read your piece, yes, fine yeah, piece. Yes. And, um, you know, he was there with about 20 people. He was there with a, a reverend who I think used to work for ACORN. Very different politically. He was challenged very harshly at times. But reverend he, Ken McCoy, yes. a good yeah. friend of mine. He, he, what, 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 what struck me was this was not a sympathetic audience, but he let the people ask their questions, and even challenge him politically. And he didn't get upset. He provided his take on it, and they went and walked the streets together. And, I mean, that's just one instance. I don't know whether it's going to be a trend, but the fact that he lives in St. Louis now and knows the problems, yeah. it, it gives me a sense that he's going to be off at a better start than maybe Jay Nixon. Let, what do you let think me just say that, that uh, I think it is a most unhealthy development uh, uh, situation what we've had for so many years in which, uh, and, and most unhappy for African-Americans and, and other minorities, in which one party takes them for granted, knowing that they're going to vote for them close to 90 percent, if not higher, in uh -huh. some years. And the other party says, oh, there's no point in our going in there and competing for those votes. That, I've said to Dr. Suggs and other friends at the St. Louis American, I know you want to support every Democratic candidate who runs, but... But when you see a Republican making a sincere effort, you ought to at least take notice of it, because otherwise, how do you ever encourage other Republicans to behave in a like manner? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't. I do think many Democratic politicians have taken those urban votes for granted, mm -hmm. especially minorities, and the result is uh, a city that is rivaled only by Detroit in losing population over the last 65 years. Uh, the the figure in the post-dispatch cited in the last year, year and a half, of 47 percent unemployment among minority youth in the urban area of St. Louis. By the way, that was I said that in one of the debates. The University of Missouri School of Journalism the, at the 
Columbia, Missouri, and went and fact-checked me. And I under I had said it was in the 40% range. I had understated how bad it was. It's mm-hmm. 47%. So the the fact that one party takes them for granted, the other party doesn't compete for those votes, hurts minorities. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to change that. Now, um, you just brought up the next topic, which is about your um, unsuccessful run for governor. Mm-hmm. You had looked at it... if. Previous times mm-hmm. didn't. This time mm-hmm. you did. You had been the early favorite. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out. But you did bring up many of the very interesting, in some cases controversial issues, uh-huh. during the various debates. When you Now that it's been a few months, mm-hmm. and now that somebody's been elected governor, the guy, I mean, Eric Greitens, who actually defeated right. you and two others in the primary, looking back overall uh, at that race, are there A, things that you learned from that? I mean, Jason's often said that people often learn more from their defeats than their victories. Oh, I think that's right. I'm, I'm interested in kind yeah. of your thoughts now that it's Well, it's first, over. Of all, first of all, no regrets. Okay. Uh, on a positive campaign, I'm the only one of the four candidates in our primary who did not attack any of the other candidates in paid advertising. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of that. We remain positive. Look, uh, Joe, to succinctly answer your question... I won six straight elections, never losing. Um, I won when I outspent my opponent, and I won the last time in 2012 when I was outspent pretty dramatically by seven-figure amount. Still won. But when I'm outspent 13 to 1 by three other candidates, I'm not going to win. And that was the situation here among the actual paid uh, uh, reported funds, not counting the super funds, Mm I had about 2.6 million. My my opponents had 27 million between them, and in the primary, and then you had uh, two super PACs that took it over 30 million. Mm-hmm. So I feel very good about my participation in this campaign. Uh, Governor-elect Greitens told me that I, after the fact, that I wrote uh, ran a noble campaign. His word, and. Uh, I feel good about it. We did learn a lot. We learned that small teams are better than large teams and more agile and can turn on a dime quicker. Um, and I'm very proud of the support we had in the campaign we ran. Now, are you concerned at all about the, the the super PAC spending? There was a lot also in the general. But my point is, is do you see that as something that increasingly and, and, is going to be and not getting, only the super getting PACs, people? Because in 2012, you were attacked pretty viciously by a 501c4. Yes, and they don't have to identify their donors. So if anybody has credibility criticizing them, it's probably you because you have been the recipient of some of these attacks. I know there's a conservative thought that, no, there's a, there's a free speech element that they shouldn't be uh, you know, saying who the donors are. But as somebody who has been attacked by some of these PACs, what, what's kind of your thought on at least getting a sense of who is funding these campaigns? I would like to know, and, and I would like to know uh, uh, who was doing these super PACs this year because there was a new wrinkle introduced in the uh, super PAC number two of three that were in this, and that was the LG PAC that emerged yes. in, in the late spring. And it was made in what to me was a diabolical act of of disinformation to the public and to me and to all parties and that was it was it was designed on the website to make it look like it was favoring peter kinder when it manifestly as the weeks rolled on was not right it it was favoring mr greitens Mm -hmm. and i've had that conversation with him and said we ought to have some full disclosure there certainly from uh an office holder who said he's going to clean up corruption in Jefferson City. I, th- I think there ought to be sunlight and transparency. That, however, may involve 
it appears to necessarily involve a change in federal law that mm-hmm. cannot be accomplished in Jeff's that, That's been, I think, the challenge with that, because there had been talk about making politically active nonprofits reveal their donors, I think, after 2012, but it ran into some structural but problems. But they can require, some states do require disclosure of 501c4s and other, um, and the super PAC groups that do, require them to identify their donors for the campaigns they are launching in that state. And by the way, do you do you understand historically the reason for non-disclosure of the federal donors? The reason yes. the reason was it goes back to the civil rights movement. Correct. In the fifties, uh, you had the NAACP uh, was shielded from having to reveal their donors. Had they revealed their donors, those people would have been subject to attack and b- vicious and, and murderous mm-hmm. attack by the KKK in the states of the old Confederacy. Yeah. Now, so, one, one of the things that I think um, that you probably have thought of is because Greitens is going to become governor and because there's a Republican supermajority, a number of issues that you have been the champion of for decades, such as right to work, such as vouchers or tuition tax credits, such as tort changes, are probably going to be enacted. You're not going to be the person. Two pers- out of the three you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And uh you know, you're not going to be the person spiking the football, but you, as we've talked about at the beginning of the show, it's through getting the legislative majorities up to the point where they are now with a Republican governor where these things are going to be possible and these policies that you wanted to happen could be achieved. So what do you – I'm sure there's a mixed emotions about that, but if, you're, if your main focus is getting policy – enacted, you must be pretty happy with that result. So what's your feeling about that? I am happy that Missouri is going to join the majority of states, uh, now moving toward a very healthy, strong majority of states that are freedom to work states. It looks like Missouri will be one of three states joined by Kentucky and New Hampshire to move in that direction this year. If true, those would be the 27th, 28th, and 29th states. I think that will make Missouri competitive in a way we have simply have not been while we've been losing congressional seats the past, excuse me, the past three and a half decades. So, um, yeah, I would like to see greater school choice. The jury is still out on that one, but I will be rejoicing if that happens, if we move toward greater parental freedom to choose any school and not consign especially poor minority kids to a lifetime of poverty and despair and, and danger on dangerous streets by having to attend the public school of their zip code. I think that is wrong, and, and, and uh, I'd like to see greater parental choice. And yes, uh, when the American Tort Reform Association names St. Louis City as the number one judicial hellhole in America, I think we need to balance the scales of justice with some uh, moves toward uh, uh, lawsuit reform. So I'm, I'm going to be excited for those changes, and I hope many others that will be coming. Now, well. now in the, in, the, in the case of the edu- education and vouchers, there's, there's a lot of thought that you probably need a constitutional amendment on some of this because the way Missouri's constitution is set up. Do you expect that to be the case? Might you be active <clears throat> in that? I'm just intrigued by that. I might. Uh, and, and my friend Grover Norquist at the national level, I saw a tweet in the last 24 hours where he is, and you're referring to, you're referencing the The amendment Missouri has in our Constitution, a relic, I would argue, indisputably, of 19th century anti-Catholic bigotry called the Blaine Amendment. Mm -hmm. And more more than 30 states have that 
Blaine Amendment in their constitution. Blaine was the Speaker of the House and, and a big Whig in the 19th century who tried to get it in the U.S. Constitution, and he failed, but he got it in, embedded in so many state constitutions. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll have to see. But uh, it, it looks like Grover Norquist is beating the drums for a nationwide movement to repeal the state Blaine Amendments. Uh, this is kind of a Which more... Which will be interesting to follow. Yeah, no kidding. You know, one of the things that also has been credited with the change in, in Missouri politics <clears throat> is, is, is social issues. And I know, and I, I've brought this up on other shows, you, you have often campaigned on, on social issues, being opposed to abortion. In 2012, you criticized Susan Monte for attending an LGBT rally. Um, and, and on guns as well. You have an A-plus rating with the, the NRA. With, with Trump coming into office, do you think that there may be kind of a, a lessening of focus on those issues because his credibility in that sphere is not as strong as maybe other candidates? What's kind of your thought uh, on that? I'm tempted to say yes and no. Uh, Trump won in significant part because unlike prior uh, Republican nominees for president since Reagan, after Reagan, we have not had anybody in one of the nationally televised presidential debates look the Democratic candidate in the eye as he did and say, your stand on partial birth abortion, that the, that the baby has no rights that, that, that need to be respected under law, under our Constitution, until the moment of birth, is a radical position that should be opposed. And he said that in that debate, and I believe it was a telling moment that caused millions of Americans to think about that issue and to reflect on the fact that the democratic position of unrestricted abortion on demand and repeal of the Hyde Amendment, mm -hmm. which would force taxpayers who have moral and religious conscience objections to funding abortion to in fact pay for it, after we've had a near four decade consensus that under Roe versus Wade, abortion is legal in this country but that we will not have taxpayer funding of it. Hillary Clinton's truly radical position beyond any of the previous Democratic nominees was to repeal that Hyde Amendment, mm -hmm. that prohibition, and force taxpayers to pay for abortion. I think uh, on the pro-life issues, Trump has street cred, even though you would never have thought of him as a pro-life champion before this year. Now, do, now, now, do you think his stance on... The social issues contributed to his huge victory in I Missouri do. and other states, or was it something else? I do. I, I cited earlier the fact that even when Missouri, the Missouri legislature was dominated by the Democrats, it was, it was, it represented a pro-life majority with almost every Republican in in the House and Senate, and a good slice, a big chunk of Democrats, including an awful lot of pro-life Democrats from from the greater St. Louis region. I. I got to tell you, being the history nerd that I am, I was recently found myself reading Tom Eagleton's Wikipedia page. Yeah. Go read Senator Tom Eagleton's Wikipedia about his career, and you will find a fascinating nugget. Now, Tom Eagleton was a guy with whom I disagreed on most issues. Uh, I had enormous respect for him, and I liked him personally. And I would occasionally run into to him socially, and he would kind of dog me and I'd dog him about this or that, but we had a good uh, uh, jousting friendship. And but, if, but I learned something in reading his Wikipedia page. Good Roman Catholic boy from St. Louis that he was, he was pro-life. I, yes, I, I yes, knew that. Was. I knew that. Here's what I didn't know. In sometime during his Senate career in the 80s, he joined with Orrin Hatch, the conservative Republican senator from Utah, 
to propose the, the uh, constitutional amendment on life, and it consisted of one sentence, saying nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to guarantee a right to an abortion. Tom Eagleton, a three-term liberal Democratic senator from St. Louis, sponsored that amendment. Mm -hmm. He could not win a primary in this state today. The Post-Dispatch, which championed him throughout his career, would never endorse him. And that is how far the Democratic Party has moved to the left in Missouri and nationally, and that's why I think they find themselves in their current what, what about on the gay rights issue? Because Trump has clearly taken a position that's different from many Republicans. So is Eric Greitens. He came out against SJR 39. I, is, that, is that just a sign that it should be redrafted? And, yeah. and, and I think it can be redrafted. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's an attack on anyone's uh, rights, gay, straight or otherwise. Mm -hmm. I, I do think here's what I think about the culture wars. Mm -hmm. I think Missourians will punish either side who is seen to be the aggressor on the culture wars. So I think we need a period of quiescence, uh, a period of let's, let's tone down the rhetoric on our side, on their side, on all sides. Mm -hmm. Who was seen as the aggressor this year? I would argue it, it was the Obama-Clinton Democrats who with the promulgating the suggestion that came out of the Obama Education Department in February of this year about transgender bathrooms, they made the Democratic Party in Missouri and nationally seem as though they were cons more concerned about where little kids went to the bathroom and who they went with than they were about jobs and national security and protection from terrorists who are assaulting us here on our soil. And I think they, that bears out my statement that the American people and Missouri voters will punish whoever is seen as the aggressors on the culture wars. Now, um, that said, I mean, now that you're changing your life right now do you i mean what happens right now what are your plans at this moment or are they in a state of flux my Might plans are up in the air DC? and i will summarize them uh in the following manner the week of the primary of my loss in august okay i had a contact from a friend who i'd not spoken with since i don't know 89 or 90 and he said we did some business back then on the Southeast Missouri Regional Port Authority, and he said, I want to know if you're interested in a private sector opportunity. And I said, well, I'm certainly interested in listening because I have to make a living. And so I've been talking with them and with two other private sector opportunities that do not include lobbying. Okay. I'm not going to go down that road. Mm -hmm. uh, That's and, news in, a, in and of itself. And any of those possibilities exist, as does a possible period of consulting uh, and, and uh, with some companies and then also, uh, it, as it happens, uh, it turns out I have a number of friends in the pretty good, well-placed in the Trump administration and in, in, in the transition, one being the Deputy White House Chief of Staff, Katie Walsh, from right here in St. Louis, who I'm very proud uh, to know, and she's a friend of a number of years. She's had enormous success as Chief of Staff to Reince Priebus at the RNC, and now she's She'd be a great interview for you if you can ever get her to come up from air in the transition. <laughs> She's in New York. and, and uh, uh, But Katie and other people, Jason Miller, who's the spokesman you see a lot on TV, is a friend. Uh, Ken Blackwell who, from Ohio, who's chairing the domestic transition, is a friend. Governor Mary Fallon from Oklahoma is involved in the transition. She and I were lieutenant governors together and, and good friends. And so... I have a number of friends there. Rick Perry's another, going into Secretary of Energy. And I've been encouraged to end up in the Trump administration, and who knows? Um, 
I, who, who knows what I, I was joking you should be a deputy uh, small business association director so uh, you could work with Linda McMahon. But I, as I joked before the show, <laughs> I think Triple H is going to be chosen for that. Now, you mentioned you're not going to do lobbying and you're not going to do consulting or is that? Consulting is a possibility. Okay. We'll see. Why are you knocking out lobbying? I, I would just like you to expand on I, that. I live in southeast Missouri. I've, I've been in the halls in Jefferson City now for 24 years. I don't seek to join those who uh, walk up and down those marble halls, buttonholing legislators and asking for five minutes of their time to explain an issue. I just don't see myself now, doing that. Now, here's a big question. Is your is your bar membership still active? Or it you is not? not. So, I, I quit paying dues about 10 years ago. Would you consider becoming an active lawyer again? Uh, that's a possibility. So I ask yeah. that because in case the Trump administration is like, well, we think we might want you to join your friend Stephen Limbaugh on the federal bench, would you need to be an active lawyer to do that? Oh, I think as a practical matter, you would to be confirmed by the Senate. But I, I don't expect to seek a federal judgeship. Uh, yeah, you never know. You never know. You know, you know, as I said, Trump has picked a lot of interesting people to a lot of interesting yeah. positions. And you are an attorney, even though you're not a practicing lawyer. By training. Lawyer. Yeah, mm-hmm. by training. So would you be interested? I mean, I used to live in D.C. about 30 years ago. So, I mean, would you be I interested? I did in 81, 82. I was a young Capitol Hill aide to Bill Emerson. Yeah. yeah his in fact, campaign you I, I had managed. Yeah, because I was there at the same time. I remember that. Were you there with the Post? Yes. Okay. 80 to 85. My daughter was born out yeah, there. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that brings up another interesting point. I remember you were having a radio debate with Brad Logger in 2012, and he was calling you like a career politician and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The, the, the unsaid thing is you were not in elected politics for the first part of your adult life. Until you I was the, 37. You were, in a, you were kind of a pretty successful in the business world. And it, is it kind of a jarring thing to be in politics so long to go back to something that you did for a pretty long period of your life, which could be the private sector? Yeah, but it's really an attractive prospect right now. Oh, I bet. Um, and so we'll see how it shakes out. Now, if you end up in the private sector, would you be based in St. Louis or would you be in Cape uh, or I, where? Cape, Cape Girardeau is my ancestral home and where I still own a home. And that's where I want to live. And, and the three companies I've been talking to here in St. Louis have all said, we don't much care whether you're in Cape Girardeau or St. Louis or you have a, an apartment here to supplement your home in Cape Girardeau. So, there, so, but so that's I, nice. It, and and as one who was out in D.C. on Capitol Hill as a young congressional aide in my 20s, my mid-20s in, in 1981 and 82, uh, I do recall that it was twice as expensive to live out there. Oh, it's even more now. If not more now. And so I'm not certain at this point in my life that I want to sign up for that, but we'll have to see what opens up. I mean, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question, but there are going to be two statewide offices that are that are, that are held by Democrats now, Claire McCaskill for U.S. Senate and Nicole Galloway for Auditor. They're going to be open. Now, I know that there's going to be 100,000 Republicans that want to run for those seats, but are you interested in running for either one at this point? Uh, I, it's not in my plans, Jason. Uh, I'm not ruling anything out. I, I don't see myself running for Auditor. I have had some encouragement to run for the Senate, but I've told anyone who said that my focus right now is lining up, earning a living beginning next month. Yeah. And and even if you decided to run for that, you almost certainly would not be the only Republican in that. You would have some advantages. I mean, being in statewide offices for three terms gave you name recognition. It didn't help you this time, but in 2018, depending on the environment, it could. Um, And it I, I mentioned this on the show with John Hancock. A lot of the prospective candidates have been congressmen and congresswomen who are in D.C. right now. If Congress is not popular in two years, it may be better for Republicans to field some state-based candidate. Maybe it's not you. 
Maybe it's somebody from the legislature elsewhere. But it's something that we'll have to see down the road, I suppose. Now, one last question. I mean, you've got a fellow Republican, Mike Parson, who is succeeding you. Uh-huh. Do you have any suggestions for him or either how the, either how he should approach the job or how the job should be reshaped? Yeah, I would offer him the advice I'm offering for anybody going into uh, speaking with uh, Todd Richardson, Speaker of the House, uh, on Monday. And I said, I'll give you the advice that John Ashcroft gave me when we took the Senate majority against all expectations in January of 2001. He said, under-promise and overperform." And so that would be, uh, Mike and I have been talking. He is in the process of moving into my office as, as the lieutenant governor-elect. Uh, and I think he's going to work hard at it. And I have every expectation he'll be a good one. Um, uh, he's going to have a good governor to work with and Eric Greitens of the same party, and uh, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, I told him he's, he sits on a, more than a dozen state boards and commissions. I told him which one was my favorite and which one was my least favorite. And uh, I'm guessing uh, tourism was your favorite. No, uh, the Missouri Development Finance Board, yes. MDFB, was my favorite. When I chaired it. Because 01, you thought it was where you could make a difference? 05 to 09, you could make yes. a difference. Tourism was a close second. And bringing the tour of Missouri, and many of your listeners love that here. And I still have people come up to me all over the state and say, my whole family's Democrat. You're the only Republican I voted for, and my whole family voted for you because of that race mm-hmm. from 2007 to 09. I hope we can bring it back. It was a dream of mine to bring it back. Who knows? Maybe Governor Greitens will embrace it. Are you going to reveal what your least favorite board is, or, is, or would that be too disparaging? My least favorite one was the mash, uh, just the entanglements around the Missouri Housing Development Commission. Yeah, that's a big. That's a big. Uh, it's a big responsibility, and we've talked about it on these the show other before. boards are fun. Yeah. To me, that one was never fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not fun because you have to deal with developers, and there was always a, a, a roving controversy about low income tax credits that I'm sure you found irritating over time. But we could get into it and that another time. We just want to thank you for taking your time here and for for being on our show several other times. Can as I well. reference uh, those two maps? Yes, okay. that you'll put on your website. Yes, we, we will. will. Yeah, you look on our website to see these maps are fascinating, and they're in some ways I think miniature of what you've seen. On the national level. And I don't know if you could put up on my uh, uh, my column from December 12, 2000, I'm sorry, December 2004, which talked about the end of the Civil War in Missouri, which the voting patterns lasted nearly 130 years after Appomattox and began to break down only in the 1990s. And, and as Michael Barone says, you voted as your great-grandpappy shot. <laughs> Well, I, I would say that both of those requests are very reasonable. We will put those on the web posts. And for all of our other stories, visit stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Okay, and I'm sure that your your thousands of followers want to know from at Peter Kinder. Are you still going to be tweeting after you're... I'm still from... going to be tweeting. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I think that everyone is going to be very glad to hear that. Uh, un- until next time, so long. Thanks.